That should have been a landslide of an election. It's the greatest upset in campaign history. I think it's because one person invited the world into a clear narrative and the other person didn't. Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord. The moral of the story is take your 10-year-old son to lose. Just dream it. Say it out loud with your words and then unicorns arrive from nowhere <laughs> and they just make everything easy. A podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. I'm Brian Lord and on the show today we have multiple New York Times best-selling author, entrepreneur and writer of Building a Story Brand, Donald Miller, as he shares the ways stories shape our lives, tips to be more like Obi-Wan Kenobi, and how a crystal clear message won the presidential election. When we're formulating the Beyond Speaking podcast, we did not want it to be, hey, here's what I talk about. This is this, this is this, this is, and just listing off kind of a sales list of things they talk about. I really wanted to get to story. And if there's anyone that knows story, it's Donald Miller and actually how people can use that themselves. So if you want to become a storyteller, you really need to do this. If you're a CEO, if you're a parent, there's so many different things that kind of come into this. And so Don kind of shares, you know, his story, how he got to this point, a little bit about building a story brand. It's, it is a longer thing. That's why you write a book. But I really enjoy kind of the story and how he got into this. So Don, what first got you into story? Necessity. <laughs> Keeping people interested. How do you keep them turning the page? How do you keep them listening to you know the next uh, part of the keynote or whatever? I needed a tool. I needed something that would keep people interesting. You know, it's it's very very difficult to get a human brain to focus on something for a long time. And story is the most powerful tool I've ever encountered to compel a human brain. And it is, you know, I, I learned this writing books, and we, we wrote a nationally released screenplay, and uh, you know, all all great stuff. But I found that these formulas could work in all sorts of ways, uh, and uh, I became obsessed with them, and I became obsessed with telling stories. And a lot of people don't realize there are formulas. There, you know, my wife hates going to movies with me because I'm going to elbow her at some point and say, that guy dies in 31 minutes, you know, and it's like, eat your popcorn. And so uh, I, you know, I just, you know, you get a sense of control when you can take somebody and guide them through emotional experiences and make them laugh here and make them cry here, and here we're going to do this, and here we're going to do that. Especially if you can do it in such a way where, kind of as an artist, you understand the formulas, you understand them, and then you kind of lose yourself in them and you don't realize you're doing those things. So you get the, the kind of artistic, human, authentic expression of a narrative while also obeying the form that, honestly, if you break it, you're going to lose that audience. And so to me, I just got obsessed with it, writing books, and then when I started a company, I needed a framework to get people's attention so that they would come to my events and I thought, I wonder if I can use story to do this. And I realized just through studying human psychology, people weren't actually interested in hearing your story as much as they were interested in being invited into a story. So the big paradigm shift with the new book is don't tell your story, invite people into a story. And it's worked. It's been incredibly compelling to actually for brands to invite people into a story that, that they could engage uh, that could promise to make their lives better, promise to resolve their problems. And uh, I just accidentally stumbled onto a marketing framework. Now, did this start for you, like the the passion for telling stories? Was this like eight-year-old Donnie Miller going around and gathering kids around and telling stories? Or, or where did you first get started in either just verbally telling stories or writing stories or kind of what, where did you get started? Well, probably back near eight, I would say 12 <laughs> years old, uh, my mom got me a magic kit where you could be a magician. Uh -huh. And I booked one gig. It's the only gig I ever did. My, <laughs> my cousin's birthday party. Uh -huh. And I discovered I liked 
not just being in front of people. I, I don't think that's the part that I loved, although that was fine. I liked composing something that would take them up and down. That there was a, I, it felt impactful to be in front of a group of people and to make them laugh here and make them wonder what was going on here. Where'd the nickel go? You know, those kinds of things. <laughs> uh, and uh, that was part of it. And, and I would consider that, I don't know what the psychological term is, the entertainer gene, right? You just, so an entertainer gene is if you're in a conversation and there's a lull in the conversation, there could be four people in the conversation, but the entertainer gene always thinks it's their fault that there's a lull in the conversation. <laughs> this, and so they feel this need to keep things going. That lent itself first to music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually went to college, my first year of college, on a tuba scholarship. Oh, yeah. And I kid you not, I wanted to be a tuba composer. <laughs> and I was literally composing four-part four, four uh, pieces for tuba when f- suddenly the lights went on and I said, this is never, ever going to be a career. Mm-hmm. And plus... Uh, Girls just aren't interested in tuba players. <laughs> and so all that I loved about music, really much later when I began to write books, I discovered laid perfectly over writing books that, you know, we're going to hook them with this sort of thing. And we're going to make them feel this. And then at the end of this chapter, I just want to leave them hanging enough to turn the page and read the next chapter. And I could, I, everything that I, I thought was gratifying about composing music, and I guess doing one magic show, uh, <laughs> was gratifying about writing books. And then that, of course, once I wrote a book, I began to be asked to speak, and the same sort of thing. How can you keep the audience for, you know, for 30 minutes, 45 minutes? Uh, one of the talks I give these days, uh, not very often, but I get to give a 90-minute talk, and it's an awesome challenge to go 90 minutes, the length of a movie, and see if you can keep people paying attention. And so I think it's it's partly that entertainer gene and partly, you know, I, I would liken it to being a composer. Uh, of course, they're much more brilliant than I am, right? But but just keeping people interested and, and moving throughout a piece of work, uh, to me, is a challenge. And it's just my favorite thing. It's my favorite challenge. And also, you know, as a business person, a marketing campaign. So I'll put together marketing campaigns where I, okay, they're being introduced to the product this way, but then I want them to feel this. Then I want them to really realize they have to have it. Then I want to not let them have it. And then I want to actually send this email where they can finally have it. And th- you know, you're, it's, <laughs> it's building it's, those gaps. Building the story gaps. You're yeah. opening and closing story loops inside of a marketing or branding campaign. And the only thing that motivates a human is the opening and closing of story loops. Hunger is the open of a, opening of a story loop. A meal is the closing of the story loop. Yeah. It's, it's the only thing that motivates human beings. And so in positioning our products, the only way to get somebody to buy it is to open a story loop that the product will close. And so we're not just studying story and entertainment. We're studying human psychology and human motivation and human drive. So why do on that, why do stories connect with us so much? Well, there's a number of reasons, and I'll go into a few of them. One is we live vicariously through characters. They make us feel less alone. And we can take risks vicariously through a character that we wouldn't take in real life. Uh, We can identify. Stories make sense of our lives. Uh, Robert McKee would say we have a moral compass in our brain, and it is set and tuned by story. Story tells us what's worth living for, what's worth dying for, what's worth sacrificing for. Story tells us all that. And you can come out of a movie and have a clearer, clearer sense of what life is supposed to be like. That's part of why we are drawn to story. The main reason, though, I think we're drawn to stories is because stories are clear. Good stories are clear. Bad stories are not. And by clear, I mean, uh, in my own life, I woke up this morning. I self-identified as a protagonist, as every human being does. And there were things I had to get accomplished today. I knew I had a one o'clock start with some interviews. So that means I've got about four hours of writing and work I've got to do 
Got to be in the shed by 8 a.m. I have a riding shed. I got to be out in the backyard in the riding <laughs> shed by 8 a.m. Or I'm not going to get that done. And, you know, and, and, and a rough idea of a climactic scene. We have 26 college students coming over to the, the house tonight. They're all interns at, uh, are, are on the president's council at this thing. And, you know, the, the climactic scene tonight is those 26 students leave inspired and ready to take on the world. That's a story. It's not a very interesting story, <laughs> but it's a story. And it's a muddled story because I wanted to get the writing done. I wanted to get the podcast interviews done. And I wanted to inspire the students. Normally, a story wouldn't be about that many, those many things. What we love about going to a movie is it's extremely clear. All of the noise and clutter is out of it. So we know exactly what Jason Bourne wants. We know the challenges that befall him. We know, foreshadowed from early in the story, the obligatory scene which will resolve all the conflict where the antagonist and the protagonist go head-to-head and fight mano a mano, and the winner, of course, become, defines what the story is about. Is it a tragedy, a sad ending, or is it a comedy, a happy ending? Our real lives are not that clear, and the human brain is drawn to clarity and away from confusion. Let me, let me give you an example of how this works in marketing, branding, and real life, all politics aside. You have uh, Hillary Clinton says she wants to do 120 different things with America. She gave us a volume discount. <laughs> Donald Trump wants to do one thing with America. Everybody can repeat it. Nobody, nobody actually knows anything that Hillary wanted to do with America because she threw so much, too much at us. She threw so much noise and clutter at us. I mean, no, nothing against Hillary. The brain couldn't process it. Everybody could process exactly what Donald Trump wanted to do. And, you know, she won the popular vote, but she sh- that should have been a landslide of an election. It was the greatest upset in campaign history. I think it's because one person invited the world into a clear narrative and the other person didn't. And the truth is about marketing, people do not buy the best products and services. Mm-hmm. They buy the ones that they can understand the fastest. So this idea of us inviting customers into a very clear narrative directly translates to the bottom line and dictates how the world functions. Uh, Arguably, we didn't get the best presidential candidate, but we got the one who could communicate the clearest. Although I do think uh, it is important for a leader to communicate very, very clearly in sound bites that have to do with inviting people into a narrative if they want to be followed. And so, you know, we do have a president who was able to do that, at least. And where does that come from? Well, it comes from so many years on television. Building the the first part of you know building a story brand, you know, you talk about having a character or a hero who has a problem and then meets a guide. Right. So, so for you in your life, is there a particular guide that you go to? So, even though you know this so well, who do you go to, kind of as as your guide or your you know person that influences you towards that right direction? Well, I have a ton of them. I mean, you, you'd have to pick a category. Is it literature? <laughs> is it business? Is it you know, being a husband? You know, which category are you talking about? I would say, you know, I've had many. Um, I, I can actually point you toward the mentors that I had. There was a youth pastor when I was a kid who I wrote a a review of the high school. I was in junior high, but I wrote a review of the high school talent show. And he printed it in the church youth group newsletter. Well, that was my first. I, I'm published. <laughs> and people would stop me in the hall and say, you know, you're a good writer. That marked me for life. It told me early on, you can compose pieces that people enjoy. And so that was a guide. And, and the function of a guide in a story is to help the hero win the day. That's why we always say, never let your brand be the hero. Only let your brand be the guide. The, the purpose of your brand is to help your customers win the day. And, you know, we each self-identify as the hero in a story. And we're not actually looking for another hero. We're looking for a guide. And when we position ourselves as the hero, 
we are saying, I'm a hero, you're a hero, we're contending for a scarcity of resources, and we put ourselves in contention with the people that we're trying to do business with. So that, that's the difference between a hero and a guide. And every hero is looking, every person is looking for somebody to help them win the day. For me, it started with that youth group uh, leader, that youth leader's name is David Gentiles, dedicated my, my, my book to him early on. And then from there, went to a gentleman who ran a publishing company and allowed me to come on and work in the warehouse. And four years later, I was the president of that publishing company. And then there were a number of writers who counseled me on how to write books. And then there was a, a guy named Bob Goff, who I met 50 miles from the nearest road while kayaking <laughs> in British Columbia. He had dynamited the side of a hill and built a probably a $10 million lodge there. And I just paddled up to his dock and spent uh, about five hours with him. And we've been friends ever since. And he, he's taught me so much about how to have joy in life and how to just go for it. So th there's that guide, yeah. right? And, you know, we go on and on. Well, I'm glad you got to Bob Goff because I asked him this exact same question. Oh, you did? And he said you. Oh, well, no, so, he's my guide. I'm not his guide. Don't let <laughs> him switch so, that around. So he's, so I was making sure because his, his interview comes out uh, shortly here. So I want to make sure because I was going to feel I was going to really drive that home with Bob that uh, you said Don, but Don didn't say you. So I'm glad you got to him. Oh, here. absolutely You, not, you, you no. definitely have a lot of mentors and, and guides along well, the way. Well, we can all serve as guides in each other's lives, right? You, you want to quickly position yourself as the person who helps other people win, that's the key to leadership. Yeah, and you know, even your your question, you know, tell me about your life and and, and who are your guides. You asked me to be the hero, and it just made me very uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> now, now for you, it's a natural thing to to be the guide. How is this, is a person, whether it's a parent, a teacher, CEO, a sales a salesperson, how do they take that mental shift from being the hero to the guide? Well, the key with a guide is you're there to help the, the people win. So you identify the stakeholders. You ask yourself, what do they want? What are the challenges that they are facing? And then as a guide, you do two things in order to position yourself as a guide. One is you express empathy. You care about them. You actually say, I feel your pain. Remember Bill Clinton? I feel your pain. <laughs> it worked and yeah. because people sense I care about you. But you can't just care about people. You can't just have empathy. You have to have competence. And you have to be able to say, I feel your pain and I can get you out of this. And that's the one-two punch psychologically that people say, that's my guide. And as soon as they realize that, you are officially inside of their story and you're guiding them through that story. And of course, you want to guide them with a plan and call them to action to a successful climactic scene, if you will. I think the job of a leader is to stand up almost every, every day and say, this is what the story we're involved in is about. This is why it matters. And this is your role inside that story. That's it. CEO, every day, this is what our story is about. This is why it matters. And here's your role inside that story. And of course, you want to do, break it down to every individual, but also each department. Here's the sales department's role inside this beautiful story we're trying to get done. If it's a sports team, here's the defensive line's uh, role inside of this story that we're trying to get done. And what that does is it puts them into something called logotherapy. It's, a, it's something invented by Viktor Frankl many, many years ago. And Viktor Frankl said, look, if you can identify a drive in life, something that you're heading toward, and if you can identify a reason to go through challenges, because we're all going to go through challenges, and if you don't have a reason to go through challenges, you're going to go crazy, right? And if you can head toward a climactic scene, in other words, if you can frame within your brain a narrative that you're living within, it directly correlates with mental health. 
And he actually found that suicide rates plummeted in the mental hospitals that he was working with, working within in Vienna when he put them through logotherapy. And so what, what a lot of CEOs don't realize is you're not just there to build a company. You can actually provide your, all your teams, 300,000 employees, with a, a better chance and contribute to their mental health because you're the one waking up every day and saying, hey, team, we're going this direction. And here's why it matters because our customers are dealing with these problems and it's not right. They shouldn't have to deal with this one. We have a better price, we have a better product, and we can resolve these problems. That's why it matters. And your role, sales team, is so important because of this. And what you have when you do that is an audience who's sitting there going, I love that guy. <laughs> I love that guy. Because he's my guide. He's not the hero. He's not up there talking about himself. He's my guide. And he gives me a story in which I can live and win. So kind of to, to close this up here, and, and you're working through the story framework, you know, you've got to have that that resolution. And I, I think it's so interesting, you know, putting that person in as the hero, but I know in a way the guide is so important. So the book, The Building Story Brand, is kind of like Donald Miller kind of being your your uh, your guide there. And, and these people are then putting themselves, they're using this and then putting themselves into the role of a guide. Mm-hmm. What do you feel like is the closing even the even the guide even Obi Wan Kenobi is kind of right. kind of a hero in a way for what he does or yeah. or Hamish or whoever it might be? What is kind of the resolution that people when they take this this you know building a story brand when they apply this? What is a successful guide to you? A successful guide participates in the transformation of the hero. Uh, Lionel in the King's speech when he first meets King George, uh, King George is distraught. He is downtrodden. He has zero belief in himself. I mean, there's a beautiful, powerful scene where he is crying and his wife is comforting and he's saying, this nation is, is, is straddled here with an inefficient king or, or, or a king who, who can't get the job done. I can't live up to my father's reputation. The wrong man has been chosen. That's the beginning of the story. Lionel steps into his life as a guide, very clearly gives him a vision of what the future can look like and walks him through a plan which is the guy's responsibility. Give the hero a plan. And he begins to enact that plan. We're going to meet all the time. Uh, We're going to go through these exercises. In the end, the king gives an incredibly important speech, uh, inspiring Britain to stand up to and stay strong against the Nazis. He nails the speech. That's the climactic scene the hero's climactic scene. But the, the guide has one more thing they have to do, and you'll see this in movies. The guide goes to the hero and says, you have changed. You are not the same person you used to be. You're different. You're different because you lived through this story so ripe with conflict. You are not the person who cannot give speeches. You are not the person who believes that you are not supposed to be king. You are the person who can live up to your father's legacy. You are the person who can... You name the hero. You tell them what their new name is. In the movie Moneyball, Billy Bean doesn't know if he has what it takes. He failed as a professional baseball player. He's, you know, trusting this guide who gave him a plan. He trusts in the plan. He enacts it. His family's kind of falling apart there. He's trying to keep that together. He's a bumbling mess. Goes 20 straight wins, breaks the baseball record until the Cleveland Indians of this year. <laughs> and uh, at the end of it, he's, he's you know, they, they, they accomplish great things. He's brought to Boston, and the Red Sox say, you know, true story. I actually spent a day with Billy Bean. 
True story. He, he, they said, do you, do you want the job? You can be general manager here. And he said no. And one of the reasons in the movie, at least, that, that he thought he didn't want to do it is because he just didn't feel worthy. And so it was Peter Brand, played by Jonah Hill, who sat him down and showed him this video. And it was, it was farm league tape from some baseball game that had recently happened. 280-pound, you know, catcher gets up to the plate. Uh, and he has never hit a double in his entire career. He can hit the ball. But even if he hits what would normally be a, a standing triple, he can only get to first base. <laughs> and he decided, today, I am going to round first base. I'm going to hit second. I'm going for it. And he swings, he hits the ball, and he just takes off. He's going to get his first double, and it's a good hit ball. And he trips on first base and face plants into the infield. And he crawls back to first base so he's not thrown out. And everybody around him is kind of laughing and saying something to him. And, and Peter Brand pauses the tape. And he says, Billy, this guy, you know, obviously, you know, thinks he failed. And Billy says, ah, oh, poor guy, you know, tripped on first base. He said, no, you don't understand. He doesn't realize he hit a home run. And he hits play and he shows the other players, telling him, hey, get up. You, you cleared the fence by 50 feet. <laughs> and the big guy starts rounding the bases. That is the scene in the movie where the guide steps back in and says, Billy, you're different. In fact, it's hilarious because, because he says, you know, Billy's kind of looking at it, maybe a little choked up. And uh, Peter says, Billy, it's a metaphor. And Billy says, I know it's an effing metaphor. And he walks out. <laughs> but that scene is where the guide steps back in and says, you're different. You've transformed. I think it is the responsibility of leaders to transform and participate in the transformation. Now, we can't transform them ourselves. It's their decisions. But to participate, to give them everything we can give them to become better versions of themselves. And when they do... It is our job. It can't come from inside them. Nobody's going to look at themselves in the mirror and say, I'm a better person now. It doesn't happen. It has to come from that guide who's been there, done that, cares about them, and has the competency to get them out to say, you are different now. And when we do that to our heroes, they have the emotional strength and ability to turn around and become guides themselves. Thanks again to Donald Miller, and thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking Podcast. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes and Stitcher. To learn more about Donald Miller and others, go to beyondspeak.com because adding the ING to make speaking was too expensive. For this episode of the Beyond Speaking podcast, your technical director, producer, and head Steelers fan was Eric Woody. Your creative director and part-time leprechaun was Travis Franklin. Brian Lord, your host, executive producer, and specialist in speaking about himself in third person. Additional thanks to special consultant and the pride of St. Paul, Lauren D. of Dean Associates. Thank you to the incredible voice talents of the muy profundo Robert Borges. Finally, thanks to the premier founder, Dwayne Ward, CEO Sean Hanks, and CIO Chris Yount, simply because you need to thank powerful people. If you've listened this far, you clearly have nothing better to do, so why not continue on and listen to the next Beyond Speaking podcast.